These dark and uncertain times, if it brings you some warmth and happiness, I'm I'm happy to uh, I'm happy to to cooperate. I suppose. It made my day. It really did. Ooh, I'm so warm now. So economics. This this is probably not the first time the question has been raised, but I do need information on that one thousand dollar budget per video. What do you mean? Sorry. Um, you mentioned that it costs a thousand bucks per video. Yeah, probably like that. Give or take. How 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 do you? I think my audio is fucked up. Uh, it's a little bit. Or I mean, obviously, it depends on the the different videos. Um, but basically, the sort of the breakdown of it, and that sort of like outside of you know, uh, intangible things like my time or anything like that. Um, there's someone that helps me collect uh, footage and do research. There's someone that helps me put together these videos. I do most of the video editing um, and the script writing, but someone helps me with my audio. Uh, and collectively, there's also things like stock footage sometimes that I have to buy outside of my standard subscription. Uh, and look, you know, there are some videos that I just do entirely myself, uh, and it's free. And there are some videos that cost quite a lot of, well, I mean, in quotation marks, I guess, a lot of money to put together. Uh, I can't imagine it's anything on the scale of what a lot of YouTubers cost to put a lot of videos together, but um, yeah, I mean, that's sort of like probably a, a blanket figure, I suppose. We'll sure. that. Yeah, I love your videos, man. Thanks for that, dude. Uh, no yep. Can we know how old are you? How old am I? Well, I don't know. It's a bit of a secret. I'm less than 30. How about that? Really? Less than 30. Wow. That's great. Yeah, it's my, uh, you know, thick, what are you, 29? Uh, like Australian accent that disguises my age a little bit. Okay. I've just sent you a message. Can you please see it? Wait, how old? Hello? Ah, uh, yes, hello. Yo, he's balling, dude. <laughs> uh, to be honest with you, I uh, I don't really check uh, personal messages, and I, I'm sure you can probably see it on the live stream. Oh, actually, you can't really see it on the live stream. Hang on. Uh... Yeah, well, if you look at the left-hand side of the Discord, it's absolutely filled to the brim with messages. I, I just made a conscious effort of, like, my, my good almighty, I just cannot keep up with all of them. Um, so I figure if I reply to none of them, uh, I'm being picky, so apologies about that. But you can talk to me here, you know, hello. <laughs> if you've got something to tell me, you can share it with everyone, I suppose. You know, classic classroom, you know. Yeah. Actually, I do kind of have a little question on the video or whatever. Yes. I was just going to say, did something, so did anything come up about like renting versus like buying or owning a home? Like were there economics in that? You mentioned like, oh, people see mortgage prices are like the same prices as rent. So I should just buy a house. Like did that come up really at all and saying like, oh, it's safer to rent as opposed to buying a house or did you find anything along those lines? Yeah, well, it's one of those difficult things, and it's, it ultimately is one of those things, especially the rent first buy argument, that there's points to be made for either side of it, and it depends on, um, obviously, a few factors, like if you plan to move within the next few years, things of that nature, but ultimately, um, it's a way for you to kind of, uh, inevitably, you have to take some speculative stance on the market, right? Uh, now, if you foresee property prices going down, uh, and going down faster than the difference between paying your rent and paying a mortgage would be, uh, and paying a mortgage would be, uh, then of course you know you should elect to rent. Uh, if you foresee rental prices staying stagnant, uh, and you're well, in that case, you just got to toss it up. Like if, if prices are going to stay more or less stagnant, um, then obviously. Uh, if rent is less than a mortgage, you should rent, and if a mortgage is less than, um, uh, you know, the rent, you should you should buy. Uh, and of course, if it's going to appreciate in value, um, then you should take a mortgage, so long as you're getting a you know a decent interest rate on all of these in all of these scenarios. Uh, now, these sort of in this day and age, uh, potentially that's probably skewed more towards the 
uh, the purchase side of the equation um, for a lot of people just given how low interest rates are uh, and how flexible loan terms are so that you know you, you know you can have cash flow and, and potentially even equities um, uh, movements over renting um, that just sort of benefit having a, having a home yourself uh, so yeah it, it ultimately sort of depends on a lot of factors a lot of factors uh, beyond but you because you mentioned in the video like housing like house values like being way higher than they actually are it's like it's like at what point do you perceive it because it's like i live in kentucky of the united states it's like buying a 2000 square foot home here is not the same as like san francisco so like is there right i get point where looking at a house it's like man that looks like the right value or is it like wow only a 2,000 square foot home that costs $400,000, like this seems way too high for this area. Yeah, and that's ultimately a question that you're going to have to ask yourself. Unfortunately, it's one of those things that there's so many property markets in so many states and cities and countries around the world that it's impossible to know um, which way the equation is going to fall either way. Uh, I think if you're going to take anything away from it, just understand um, that there is no correct answer. There's a lot of people that will advocate for you should always, always, always buy a house and there's no other alternative. Uh, or the alternative is there are people that say, oh, no, never ever own a house, just you know, rent, you're going to be way ahead. Um, here's what I'll sort of say in terms of the advantages and disadvantages and, and um, there's so much to talk about. I could talk about this for days and it is actually something very interesting to me because uh, I work sort of indirectly in this industry. Um, I personally rent the property that I live in uh, because it's actually a high-rise apartment uh, and I see that the value of the actual building will depreciate faster than the subsequent land that it sits on. I actually don't see future prospects for the apartment that I live in, but I enjoy living in it because it's close to a train station. It's easy for me to get to work in the city. That's a lovely area. It's got a beautiful view, um, but that is sort of one of those things. It's almost like I'm renting a hotel room in a sense just for a very, very long time, um, but I do own uh, you know, properties. Uh, that are just in sort of more stable markets. Now, in terms of the rent first buy, another thing is to consider, uh, it, it's not necessarily a question of economics because economics assumes that everyone's really rational, everyone makes these perfect decisions, uh, everyone acts in a perfect way, but it is probably more to do with personal finance and psychology. Uh, people will sort of say, oh, you know, sure, um, it's gonna be cheaper for you to rent than it is going to be to pay off this mortgage. Uh, if you put that money into, uh, you know, the stock market, you're going to be out ahead uh, and you get to have a diversified portfolio of shares that are going to be able to return your dividends and all that sort of stuff. And that's great. That's fantastic. And you know what? There might actually be an argument to be made for that for a lot of properties that could be rented versus bought uh, in markets around the world. My problem with that assumption is who the hell goes at the end of the month? Oh, you know what? Look, I've paid... You know, $2,000 in rent this month. If I had a mortgage, I would have paid $2,500. Ah, you beauty, I can put $500 into the S&P 500. Now, I'm sure there are some people that would do that. You know, before anyone pipes up, oh, you do that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, you know, people that are uh, subscribing to an economics YouTube channel and are here for a Q&A session about the real estate market okay. may be prudent individuals <laughs> enough to do that. Um, but you've got to think of the average punter out there. You've got to understand that the average person out there, especially when it comes to personal finance, is an absolute fucking moron. Um, they're going to see an extra five hundred dollars a. They're going to see an extra five hundred dollars a month in you. You beauty, I can go and spend that on, you know, a restaurant, or I can go and spend that it's on a new tattoo, okay. or, or or a lifted car, or you beauty, you know, I can I can afford to uh, make that new Mustang payment, um, and that means. Um, of course, that's not going to be a, a proper financial situation for them. If nothing else, uh, a mortgage is pretty idiot-proof. You know, you're going to have a 30-year mortgage, and at the end of it, you're going to have an asset. Whether that asset's depreciated or appreciated, whether that asset's actually sort of risen in value compared to what you put into it, uh, whether you would have, on paper, been financially better off renting, it doesn't matter because you'll have something. You know, if you're renting, you're not guaranteed anything, and it's up to you, the ball's in your court, to actually make sort of prudent investment decisions around the money that you may or may not be saving. Uh, but if you have a mortgage, at the end of the day, you're going to have something. And something, I think, is, you know, for people, for the average punter out there that doesn't have a clue about what an APR or a, you know, ROI or LVR, LMI, all of that sort of stuff means, that's probably a good alternative. Um, so, um, in a very, very roundabout way, and something that's got to have given us hopefully a good chuckle uh, at the expense of our common man, uh, that's that's the way that I would answer that question. Uh, awesome. yeah. Thanks. 
Yeah, do you have any uh, favorite REITs? Sorry, what, what, what? Uh, do you have a favorite REIT? I don't, I don't know if it's your, I don't know if I don't know what that is or if you're sort of, can you type it out for me? Uh, sure. A negative gearing in Australia. Oh, yes, negative gearing in Australia. That's a whole different kettle of fish. Uh, it's so not we really... both know your use. It's, it's uh, you know, it's uh, very, very topical to our market and uh, yeah, a few changes and stuff like that. Uh, New South Wales, for example, today announced that they're um, abolishing stamp duty and, and uh, going to a land tax, uh, which will be very, very interesting. Well, do you think that would be good or bad for buyers? Because the land taxes right now are like, not too bad, but not too good. Survive them getting here. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, look, I think it's probably one of those things that's it's fair for a few reasons. Uh, I think, especially given the way our pension works, and I'm sorry, the Australians have already derailed it, Captain Locke will be very angry. Um, but especially given how our pensions work, in Australia there's a case where a lot of people um, will be retired um, and they'll be living off government welfare, you know, basically a pension, um, and they will, um, you know, live in a $4 million house on the waterfront of Sydney Harbour. Um, and because they don't pay anything to maintain that, uh, you know, they can kind of get away with it and still receive welfare. Yeah. Uh, for, for whoever's freaking mouth breathing into their microphone, uh, this is... Uh, uh -huh. I found him. I found him. I kept muting the wrong people. Uh, hopefully yeah, that yeah. was the right person. Uh, that's probably a timely reminder that, uh, look, if you do have a question, you feel free to unmute yourself. Um, but if we could ask by default if you guys could all... Uh, just mute yourself because if we have something like that or you're echoing or you're, I don't know, mouth breathing into your microphone or you've swallowed it or whatever the, that one was, um, yeah, uh, just um, it, it, it sort of interrupts everything. Um, now, ultimately, what I think is it's going to be a good thing. It's going to suck for a few people that have, you know, 10 investment properties, especially in this market, because they're suddenly going to have to pay up these extra expenses even after all of their um, things have been paid out. Um, but realistically, I think it's going to make uh, the decision much more responsible about managing expenses and things of that nature. Uh, but it will be interesting to see how they implement it. Um, good question. Anyway, um, that's very, very Australian. Actually, I guess it's real estate. So you know what? For, for starters, the, uh, the Australians are uh, not up to no good derailing our conversation. It was real estate focused. So you know what? You get away with it. Okay. Uh, e, e, what do you think of the 75% uh, of Americans who can't, who are living paycheck to paycheck and like 55% of Canadians who are living paycheck to paycheck in terms when it comes to uh, the investment market in for real estate? Yeah. So this is one of those things. There's a lot to be said about this. Um, and uh, I don't know, sneak, sneak preview, um, just because it is something, you know, my, my educational background uh, is economics. But my professional uh, background is is finance and, and dealing, you know, uh, for a lot of my career with with people's personal finances, which I, is something I'm very very passionate about, um, something that I'm very interested in, uh, and something that I feel strongly about, especially in situations like this. So two things: uh, one is that it's sort of sneaky announcement, and it probably is coming soon. Uh, you know, soon trademark. I've trademarked the term soon because um, it's non-committal. Uh, I will be starting a second channel that's going to focus on like finance, personal finance in a sense of, um, you know, what it would mean in relation to the wider economy, um, just because it is something that I feel really, really strongly about. Now, um, shameless plug aside, uh, to answer that particular question, it's a really scary predicament. Um, now, there are a few things to unpack there. The first is, of course, you know, there are people uh, that unfortunately for, you know, through no fault of their own, have found themselves in situations like that. Um, you know, they might be, um, you know, uh, well, they might be sort of disabled, um, they might have lost family, they may have been in a situation where through, uh, you know, as I said, ultimately through no fault of their own, um, they're unable to earn, you know, a, a decent living income. And on top of that, there are many people out there that, uh, you know, maybe partially through faults of their own you know maybe they've had too many children or um you know sort of forgot not gone and gotten an education when potentially they could have or potentially they've got it uh you know mixed up with criminal activities and it's made them sort of underemployable. uh you know maybe they're not getting the employment that they want um and you know what for those two categories 
uh, especially the first category, I feel great empathy for them because unfortunately that's a situation that was no fault of their own. Uh, and look, even for the second group of people, uh, I'm a big believer in once people have you know done their time for whatever misdeed they may have done, uh, we as society sort of help them up from it. But uh, maybe I feel a little bit less sorry for the people that are struggling to get by while, uh, I don't know, also planning for their 17th child. But that's just me. Uh, but now the third group. Um, the third group are people that do have good jobs. Um, you know, maybe they're not super high income earners, but they have, you know, 40,000 plus, you know, a year jobs and, um, you know, cost of living areas that are not sort of uh, completely catastrophic. And they are just reckless. They just spend money on stupid shit. They live paycheck to paycheck. They have credit card debt. They have a new car every three years. Um, they don't ask what the price is, they ask what the monthly repayments are, and I think that is the real problem. Um, people that just think that's a way to live. Now, when you sort of see people that don't have, you know, $750 in their bank account, well, the issues like what we're experiencing here, where people can't afford to lose their jobs, where people are marching onto streets, um, you know, to, to fight for the right to get back to work, it all starts to make a little bit more sense. Um, now, I think those people are uh, idiots, but you kind of have to feel for them a little bit because I'm sure there are sort of plenty of those protesters that are out there like, you know what, if I don't get back to work or if I get fired, I don't know how I'm going to eat at the end of the month. You know, welfare's not, not be coming through for me quickly enough. What are my alternatives? Uh, and it means that, you know, uh, unfortunately our society is, is precariously pro, uh, close to a complete uh, meltdown if it hits such like the slightest little bump in the road. Uh, now, I've used this analogy before and I'll keep on using it because I think it's a good analogy and uh, I don't know, maybe it just makes sense to someone like me who's a big time car guy. Um, but savings or aggregate savings amongst civilians or also citizens in an economy uh, is sort of like suspension in a car. Um, you know, it doesn't actually do anything and having too much suspension can actually be somewhat detrimental to how your car handles and things like that. Um, but having just a little bit you know, a nice healthy amount of suspension means that if you hit a pothole, uh, you're not going to go flying into the air or you're not going to completely ruin your car. And I think right now at the moment, um, you know, especially in America or, you know what, I can't really say Australia is sort of guilt free of it as well. We're in a situation where a lot of people are driving down the roads. They don't even have rubber tires on. They're just steel rims uh, bolted straight to the body of their car. And as soon as they hit just the slightest inconvenience, um, they're, they're heading straight for a big crash. Um, which is sort of, um, I don't know, we'll call it a poetic way that I sort of foresee the problem with uh, people having not much saving. So you prefer like a Chinese model instead of people saving? In the sense it's... that in the sense that they have a much higher rate of saving. Yeah, plus like they save up for like one big property and then they, they still have savings afterwards. Yeah, I'm actually... Uh... You go over the Chinese model for people who don't know. Yeah, and I think um, another big takeaway for the Chinese model is, of course, they have um, you know, multi-generational housing, um, which I think is one of those things that, of course, we haven't really embraced too much uh, here in the Western world, but I think it's one of those things we've been inevitably almost forced into, um, which I think is honestly, like, it's, yeah. it's one of those things that's a real shame. Um, now, look, as I alluded to earlier, look, I'm, I'm, I'm less than 30 years old, and uh, every single one of my friends, apart from one of my good friends who's uh, like a, an exchange student here in Australia, uh, still lives with their parents because we live in Sydney. And uh, unfortunately, it's just one of those instances where, my God, you know, housing in Sydney is just so unaffordable that people are forced to live with their parents until they're, you know, 30 and, you know, sort of some way off the corporate ladder. Uh, either that or they, they sort of move to a, a different area. Uh, but I really wish um, that genuine multi-generational housing was somewhat more socially acceptable in the Western world because I think it does a lot of good. Uh, for starters, you know, it, it sort of, you know, in, in best case scenarios, it builds a nice cohesive family unit. It means that, you know, kids can be looked after uh, without the need for things like daycare and stuff like that. Um, so it does help out sort of financially. But also, uh, you know, think of the, the sort of, um, sort of non-tangible effects of uh, less demand for a million houses and all that sort of stuff. Um, but of course, I think I, don't know, I, I think it's probably one of those insurmountable things that a lot of people are still going to look down on people that live with their parents at the age of forty. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean the the China model they've they've got something going going right there, and I think a big part of it is uh, is that multi generational housing. Uh, that being said, though, look, 
the Chinese property market is is an absolute basket case. Um, I don't think it should be the envy of any property market around the world uh, at all. Um, and they've got their own problems, but I think that is something that they do quite well. Yeah, it's like they have the uh, ghost cities, but still, I, I I really like the mentality of someone who can like save up a lot of money and then buy something that actually will have value into the future. Like a property, like in like what the Chinese usually do is they did buy property over the world. Like in Canada, we have a huge problem with Chinese investment, massively increasing all our housing prices. Wait, uh, do you think that's going to be a problem later on? Uh, well, I think it's uh, uh, it's it's one of those things. It's it's very heated because um, effectively there are advantages to people, you know basically delivering foreign direct investment into a country. But if they're directing, uh, if the, the investment is directly into uh, a market where unfortunately um, they might be, you know, not investing into something that's actually sort of productive, like a house, uh, well, that's where the issues arise because they're basically just buying up these limited these limited goods. Uh, if, in, if alternatively they were forced to invest into local businesses or, um, you know, build their own you know factories or something like that um, that would probably be a positive outcome um, but um, I sort of tend to err more on the cautious side when we sort of see uh, high levels of foreign direct investment into inert assets like housing um, because all it does is you know sort of make our little piles of dirt artificially more expensive uh, and again you know crowds out genuine sort of household buyers uh, as well as you know businesses that might sort of um, be negatively impacted by the, the cost push inflation of, of higher rental prices. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but again, it's one of those sort of things that's a very emotional issue as well because, yeah, you know, of course, there are people that are going to go f to it and look at it from the sense that, ah, you know, they, they weren't born here. They don't deserve to own our house. You know, only if they live here, stuff like that. And I think that argument's relatively nonsense, but um, there is probably a, a more civilized and, and certainly more concerning argument to be made in the sense that, um, yeah, it, it, it's not good for an economy to, to encourage um, foreign direct investment into real estate. So um, going back to your analogy about the pothole and steel rims, um, I really agree with your idea. And I feel like currently a lot of systems are really fragile and they're prone to breaking down over the smallest inconvenience. But how do you feel like we could change this situation? For example, I feel like right now, many people um, don't really consider a lot of economic um, implications. And so really political popularity is tied specifically with how, you know, how much it favors the current population. It doesn't really think about the future. Do you think that perhaps educating the masses in the field of economics could solve this issue? Or how do you think we can go about creating a system which is um, a lot more responsible? Really good question. I think the first thing, bloody hell, teach personal finance at school. Um, throw away fucking English or, you know, uh, philosophy or whatever it is, uh, and teach personal finance. Mandatory subject, everyone has to learn about it. Now, it doesn't have to be advanced stuff. It doesn't have to be learning about how to leverage your investments to, um, you know, get negatively geared, uh, you know, multi-dwelling household and all that kind of stuff. It has to be uh, very basic teach, stuff. Teach, teach kids accounting, basic accounting. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, think, I, think, I think that's what math was supposed to be. We, so in my school, we do. They just forget it. A lot of students don't pay attention. They don't see it, how it's applicable. To the well, this is, and, well, and that's well, because, a, because Americans little... are so used to, like, taking up loans, you know, <clears> not really <throat> smart. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I, uh, that doesn't really, really go like you, Ramsey. For the, for the case, <laughs> I think case. I feel like there's a there's a lot of students who want to learn about this stuff, but they want to learn about the cool, sexy finance. They want to learn how do I make mad money on the market, not how do I protect myself in the case of a uh, recession. I mean, you have, to, like, you have to teach it to the student. Like, guys don't want to hear, like, a teacher blab on about personal finance for hours and hours and hours and tell them exactly. what not to do. Well, well. Like, you have to, like, I, th I think personally every single 13, 14-year-old should just, like, be taught poker or watch The Wolf of Wall Street and then just learn it from there, like I did. <laughs> oh, good Lord. What needs to be done is that it's We're getting off topic here. Um, but, yeah, look, I mean, obviously, um, you know, there are, there are students that are just not going to be engaged with it, um, but at least give them the opportunity to learn it. 
uh, you know, in look the same way that students have the right not to learn maths or have the right not to learn history if they're sitting in the classroom. Uh, and I think all of those sorts of things will give them, um, you know, a, a leg up in life. You know, of course, there are some students that choose not to not to take it. Uh, and I think Captain Locke was, uh, or someone someone else sort of said it, uh, you know, they, they want something that's sexy. They want something that's that's new and engaging and like, you know, how to make mad money on the markets. Um, and that's one of those that things that's like, yeah, uh, unfortunately, that's not the foundation of personal finance. Realistically, nine out of 10 people aren't going to be able to engage in that kind of finance just because they're not going to be wealthy enough to justify it. Um, and I think that's a kind of a hard reality that you need to hit people over the head with. Um, but of course, doing that can mean the difference between someone being financially destitute uh, and being sort of, do, you know, doing very, very well for themselves. The other thing is, uh, I think realistically, our, um, our our public sort of demeanor is, is all about, um, you know, this sort of flex culture. Um, how, you know, people are sort of judged by how sort of wealthy they are and uh, it's all about sort of showing off what you got. Uh, that being said, I feel like I've seen a sort of genuine sort of shift in um, that kind of persona to, to people that are a bit more sort of stealthy about um, how they sort of show off. Um, now, I think if realistically I was teaching my kids anything, um, and let's say they were sort of starting from zero, and, and let's say I actually had kids, what I would sort of, what I would sort of pass down to them is, of course, uh, you know, obviously the importance of basic finances and show them, uh, you know, firsthand what poor financial management can do for you. It's like, you know, Kello basically spending your entire life living paycheck to paycheck uh, versus what good, you know, financial planning can do for you. Things like early retirement, all that sort of fun stuff. Um, but then uh, also sort of ingraining in them the idea um, that genuine wealth, genuine people that are very, very well off, uh, chances are you can walk by them on the street and you won't know. They're not wearing gold chains. They're not driving a leased Mustang. They're not, uh, you know, well, most of them probably aren't wearing a Rolex or anything like that. Uh, chances are they're probably wearing, you know, uh, relatively casual clothes and, um, you know, they've got a million dollars in, in an investment account. Uh, and that's because most people get rich by, you know, getting rich slowly. Doing, you know, having a decent job, uh, paying themselves first, investing wisely, and just being disciplined about that over a long period of time. I don't know, potentially with that personal finance class, maybe a one way to get everyone's attention is to walk into there and be like, all right, kids, who wants to get fucking rich? Uh, I, I, I did that with my students, and they're like, but I want to get rich now. That's the key thing. You got the <laughs> yeah, real, real, real genuine wealth, like, the, like economics explained, said, uh, is it's slow. It takes a long time. I was listening to The Intelligent Investor, which is a book I highly recommend if you do not want to get into investing, but learning how to protect yourself, uh, protect your money, and, and you know spend wisely. Read, read this book. It's a dry read, but it's very important. Um, it's, it's not that bad. It's pretty good. Yeah, but it it's a but the it's not it's not a way of making of getting getting rich. It's no there's no secret formula in it. Uh, it's just it is a guide to how, if you want to become wealthy in the future, what you can do today. Dude, to dude can you at least recommend Box One also. Name in the VC all right, all right, all right. Um, so if it has came up during the whole housing discussion, but uh, we have to also acknowledge that housing uh, supply is artificially restricted by most governments. Yeah, that's true. It is artificially, well, it's, there's a lot of tomfoolery in the housing market. And you're talking about things like zoning restrictions and stuff of that uh, nature? Yes. The NIMBYs, yep. the NIMBYs. All owner associations, uh, that kind of thing. Because, uh, yeah, take a look at uh, uh, nations in the east of the EU. You will see a lot of uh, buildings that are, uh, I call them commie blocks. They are apartment buildings, 12 stories, and hundreds of, even thousands of people can fit into those places in a, in a little space. So, for example, those places had an adequate supply of housing, and more was built. So the prices didn't increase by that much. 
Yeah, and I think, look, um, there are, um, there certainly are arguments to be made, uh, and it is different for every market, you know, uh, real estate is so diverse, but I mean, um, actually here in Sydney, for example, which is probably one of the more uh, expensive real estate markets in the world, uh, probably seeing some, some of the opposite. If anything, there's an oversupply of houses, uh, especially, you know, the apartments that you're sort of talking about, um, where, you know, these have been sort of put up very, very quickly to respond to this very, very expensive market. Um, they've put, been put together probably pretty cheaply, uh, and now we're sort of feeling the burden of it because we've got this downward pressure by all of these really cheap, really poor poorly put together um, apartments that have sort of found their way onto, onto our market. Um, and no one really knows just yet how to properly engage with them. Um, so, I mean, obviously there are certainly markets in the world where um, for better or for worse, there just is a limited supply. Um, you know, if you look at places like, let's say, I don't know, Manhattan, there's only so much room on Manhattan Island. So um, I think that's probably a genuinely constrained supply, but certainly in other cities with zoning laws and things of that nature. Yeah, certainly it could be argued that governments are sort of interfering with the price. Um, but I think ultimately markets sort of fill the void that they're sort of left in. Um, so when we're looking at things like, hey, you know, a uh, market that has, you know, had to work around zoning laws, uh, it will sort of move to fill that space and, uh, you know, demand will work around the supply, whatever it is artificially constrained to. Uh, it adds an interesting dynamic, but unfortunately it's just far too, um, you know, it's far too specific to any particular city or country uh, to really comment on in a broad sense. Yeah, and then the... So you mentioned about oversupply of houses, but I think the, the problem isn't an oversupply. R rather, like there's an, there's a, a lack of supply of uh, affordable homes, if you ask me. Yeah, and I mean, um, and and then obviously in Sydney, I, I would make the broad leap to say that pretty much nothing is affordable within a 30-kilometer radius of Sydney. Uh, not for the average punter, you know, not for the average sort of family that's earning... Uh, you know, let's say 100,000 Australian dollars a year, which is probably even well above an average Australian family, but uh, but I digress. Um, Would you agree that, that houses well, should drop in value? If there's yeah. an oversupply of, of premium houses, then they should drop if demand is low so that they can sell more. Yeah, I would argue, I would argue, uh, I would argue this um, that in Sydney, uh, yes, I don't think the prices genuinely reflect the uh, the the, uh, the inherent sort of prospects of Sydney as a centre. Uh, Sydney is, you know, sure it attracts some relatively high wages, uh, which is great. Sorry, I just had to mute that guy. Uh, friendly reminder to mute your microphones by default, guys, unless you're asking a question. Um, I think it attracts some relatively high wages, but not nearly high enough to, you know, support the kind of asking prices that people are asking for. Uh, you know, uh, inner city or, um, you know, North Shore, which is kind of our more prestige areas here in Sydney, uh, demanding the same sort of prices that you would see in, uh, you know, areas surrounding Manhattan or San Francisco. Now, Manhattan and San Francisco, um, you know, hey maybe they don't have weather quite as nice as sydney but my god the jobs that you can get there are uh, absolutely eclipse the jobs that you can get in sydney um there's no sort of two ways about it so they probably genuinely justify their kind of expensive prices more so than sydney does uh, and i think it's a result of a few things here in, in sydney um or in australia first is that our government has supported the property market pretty heavily uh, you know, it has things like, you know, no land taxes, well, up until now for, for most property owners, um, which means that the actual cost, ongoing cost of, of owning a home is comparatively lower, which means that people have an ability to buy a more expensive house, uh, as well as things like, you know, negative gearing for investors, um, which is an incredibly uh, tax effective way to invest, almost to the point where people would prefer to invest into real estate exclusively over having anything in stocks because it's just so much more tax effective to do it that way. Uh, and then there's a few other sort of bits and pieces that have probably overinflated this market um, beyond where it should justifiably be put. Um, now, I say this as someone, you know, invested into the Sydney stock, uh, in, invested into the Sydney real estate market, um, but yes, I genuinely think it probably should fall. Um, and, you know, maybe not sort of fall too severely, but maybe it's it's in line for 
uh, for a correction, and that correction should be in line with you know what people's basic salaries are. Um, so hopefully, here's an interesting proposition to you. Go ahead. Uh, I believe that uh, one of the reasons is a foreign ownership of said house. Okay, is that the proposition? Yeah, you cut off. That maybe restricting foreign ownership of residential property could be a way forward to lower prices. Yeah, okay, interesting question, uh, proposition. So two things to unpack there. Uh, yes, in Sydney, uh, it is an issue uh, to a certain extent, um, but it's not the main issue. Um, there are, of course, a lot of foreign buyers here in Sydney, but they tend to, um, it, on aggregate, sort of focus more on um, higher valued properties. So the ones that aren't really going to be, um, you know, first homes for, for you know, a mum and dad looking to start a new family. Um, but they uh, are, by, by no doubt, you know, sort of something that is influencing it. Uh, the other thing is there are already restrictions. There are restrictions in place that make it sort of harder for a foreign buyer to, uh, you know, to purchase property. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're talking about sort of maybe ramping that up, uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe that could be uh, that could be an answer. But I think there are bigger forces at play, like the negative gearing, um, like probably the easier access to credit um, that's probably a little bit too easy to access. Um, but probably having more of an impact than um, the foreign purchases at this point. I yeah, have that could be an example. Wait. Uh, I have yeah. two questions. Um, the first yes. one is, sorry, Manly Day, sorry. Uh, the first one with Sydney and um, New York, how you made the comparison earlier, it's also important to remember the government's um, role in our uh, public transportation and that in like its impact in uh, housing prices. Wouldn't you say in Australia, we have like a fairly good public transportation system for like places being fairly geographically far, being like a short commute to the city? Uh, we have all right. I mean, compared to New York, it's probably not quite as good, uh, but compared to like San Francisco, uh, it's miles better. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that uh, has has an effect on it, and, and what we sort of see, as especially along train lines and things like that in uh, in Sydney, especially, uh, you do have sort of a high priced regions that sort of follow these train lines because uh, it is sort of the easiest way to get into the city. Um, but I don't think that has too much of an effect, besides potentially sort of leading to more urban sprawl um, rather than a concentration of super high value properties around a city centre. Um, but hey, potentially it adds an interesting dynamic that I'm um, not seeing there. Because I wouldn't you say like, it, for example, Penrith, 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 for example, it's like what a 45 minute commute, like there'd be much more people willing to make that commute for those lower prices than if you took that same time commute and placed it in another city, you'd have much less of a geographic capacity for houses. Ah, yes, they were just saying, okay, so you're talking about the, the areas that are, um, you know, sort of further away but are still cheap. You know, Penrith is probably a good example. Um, for those that don't know or for those that are outside, uh, Penrith is an area in Sydney that's like, um, I don't want to say poor. Um, yeah, so, no. Nah, but it, it's, it's like, uh, it's, it's a sort of a working class area. Uh, you wouldn't really class it. a lot of drugs. No, nah, not really. Not, not even. Look, in, honestly, in Sydney, it's it's just like a working class area. It, it'd be probably the equivalent of middle class in uh, a lot of places around the world. Just purely because, yeah. you know, even still, there are plenty of houses in Penrith that sell for a million Australian dollars just because it is so crazy. Uh, you still need to be, you know, real, doing doing decent um, to be able to afford a property in Penrith, of all things. Uh, but it is sort of historically a more working class area. Uh, and yeah, you know, what you sort of said is correct, where you have, um, you know, capacity for transport. Uh, people are willing to move further out because they can still get into the city in the same sort of, well, a decent time frame so they can commute uh, and take advantage of lower houses. Uh, yeah, that, that's urban sprawl, um, where, you know, people sort of move outwards to, to increase supply of houses to, you know, uh, get access to, to, cheaper, uh, to cheaper real estate. So um, that's, you know, a decent, um, you know, solution to what might be a very, very real problem for individuals. Um, but sometimes it can get 
pretty disastrous where you see people commuting, you know, two hours to get to their work because that's, you know, as close as they can afford to be in a, in a house that would still be comfortable to raise a family in. Um, I don't think we're quite there yet, um, but I would argue that we're probably getting pretty close to it in Sydney. Also, let's not forget the amount of strain that puts on the environment too. Uh, oh, who cares? Cumid doesn't uh, do well for emissions or anything like that. It's also an environmental disaster in a sense. Yeah, no, that's it's probably a good point disaster. as well. Uh, uh, a, question a question and a very interesting tidbit. Okay, go ahead. The very interesting tidbit is that we actually have an example in Jerusalem for uh, foreign ownership fucking up a certain property. There's a hotel literally across the street from the old city. Like, you can't have a more central location for a hotel. Like, it is an amazing location, but they were basically selling the suites to foreign like owners who were just never there and owned the suites, so nobody could stay at like a lot of the rooms in the hotel. So the hotel basically went bankrupt, and it's now a homeless-ridden ruin smack down right across from the from the old city, like in the most prime real estate area that you can have. And it's just sitting there, all because sure. nobody was living in it because the people who owned the paid for the rooms weren't even there. So can I can I ask something that wise? Sorry yes. to interrupt. Um, was that as a consequence of foreign direct investment? Yeah. So so is it so it's possible then that because Israel, for example, as a newer country. Um, people were essentially making a decision on whether or not they thought Israel was going to be prosperous, especially since you're saying it was right right near the old city, which is a major major destination for many people coming to Israel. And when that fell through, what you're saying there is that it's left for people to be homeless. But what I saw when I was in Israel last year was that most of the construction that's in the city of uh, Jerusalem um, and in Tel Aviv it is in shambles anyway, because you guys are scrambling to keep your construction going while also stepping off. And this is a broader political conversation we don't have to go into, but I don't know if necessarily that just because there's foreign direct investment, that that's the, the reason why that's happened. Well, it's not the, the foreign direct investment isn't the cause for any wider issues, but it's the direct issue of that specific hotel. Like it literally went bankrupt because it, it all the rooms were vacant because people owned them from like France or something because they wanted to have a room in the holy city and they can rent them out. So they just went bankrupt. Ah, well, I mean, obviously, um, that's a that's a very very specific example, and uh, you know, obviously, there are uh, ultimately times where. You know, any kind of investment goes wrong, and I would say that's probably a pretty negative outcome uh, for everyone involved. Um, but, yeah, it's just because uh, it, it's been vacant for like a decade, I think. It's it's really weird. Yeah, it's sort of like a market irrationality. It's kind of un unusual. Um, and I mean, uh, to, to respond with my uh, with my own tidbit, um, I'll add something interesting that might, and, and I know a lot of people are going to say this runs counter to the point that I was trying to make beforehand. Um, but on foreign direct investment, um, there, there is interesting, and I still believe, look, there, there are much bigger issues in, in Australia's housing market besides foreign direct investment, but I will add this to it as an interesting anecdote. Um, uh, so I live in a relatively high-rise building here in uh, like the north shore of Sydney, uh, which is really, you know, it's a quite nice area. It um, is very, very close to you know, public transport. I can catch a train into the city, well, when the city's reopened so I can go into work. It, it works quite well for me. Um, but in my building, there's a big basement garage, um, and um, you know, down there, it's, oh, I park my car. And um, but if you go down there, um, you sort of see the the higher level um, sort of penthouses or you know larger apartments in my building. They've all got designated spots, and um, you'll see 
Bentleys and McLarens and big Mercedes four-wheel drives and Range Rovers and all that kind of standard affair um, parked in these spots. And it all looks lovely, but if you really sort of live here for long enough, you'll realise that they don't move. None of those cars ever get driven. They they literally, you know, sort of live under their little dust covers if they have them. Uh, either that or they are literally collecting dust down there. Um, and you have to think to yourself, well, what the hell's going on here? You know, do these people just not, not drive their cars or, or whatever? You know, why do they even bother? Um, and then someone explained it to the security uh, in my building, explained it to me eventually, um, that these are people um, that do business in Australia, but they're, they're foreigners. They live overseas. Um, now, they'll own these apartment buildings because it's basically a very cost-effective way for them to have a hotel room. Uh, if they were to sort of move, if they were to come here on business, let's say, you know, the equivalent of even a week out of the year, um, they would demand, you know, a big fancy hotel suite and maybe they'd need a hotel suite for their staff and, uh, you know, they'd need to hire a car and all that sort of stuff and it would get very, very expensive and it's also completely wasted money. Um, you know, it's money that you can't then, uh, you know, reinvest or something like that. Um, alternatively, what they do is they just buy these beautiful apartments, and these apartments are beautiful. You know, they're many, many millions of dollars, uh, and they just leave them there. Um, the idea is that, of course, you know, sure, it's going to cost them a lot more up front, but it's ultimately an investment to them. Maybe they'll make a return, maybe they won't, maybe the prices will stay the same, um, but who cares? Um, because the alternative is maybe paying you know, $100,000 every time they sort of flew into Sydney to stay in a hotel um, because that's the sort of accommodations that they would they would demand. And I thought, um, one, damn, I aspire to be that level of rich um, where it's like, yeah, you know, hotels are probably getting a bit expensive. I'll just buy a $3 million apartment. Um, but two, the other thing is, like, it makes sense. It's pretty smart. Yeah, but do you think of... What do you think of approach to this? One, one person at a time, please. One. Sorry. Mm. <laughs> that it came up. What do you think of Vancouver's approach to this problem? Uh, taxing uh, vacant homes. I think that's a really, really good idea. Uh, probably one of those things. I'm not sure how they're going about um, enforcing it, um, but I think it's fantastic because it, it does. You know, I think um, what would be a good idea for these sort of properties is. You know, even have something like um, massively discounted rent, let's say, where maybe you just hire like someone that's the equivalent of like a, a housekeeper. You know, they get to live in this property. Maybe they pay you, um, you know, three or four hundred dollars a week, where normally these properties would cost like three thousand dollars a week. Um, they get to live in it. Um, they keep the property nice and maintained. They keep it active. You know, they keep it clean and everything like that. Uh, maybe they live in a, a guest bedroom, and when you arrive, obviously you take the master bedroom because you own the house. You're the you're the big boss. Um, you get the advantage of having a little bit of income, which is better than nothing, I would imagine. You know, if I'm gonna, if I get the choice between making four hundred dollars a week and making zero dollars a week, I'd take four hundred dollars a week every damn time. Um, you get someone to keep your house clean, and it's not going to get stale or locked up there for most of the year. And also, it houses someone. You know, that person there that's you know able to effectively. Um, you know, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, be a housekeeper, but, you know, pay massively discounted rent, uh, is going to be very, very happy. And, uh, you know, I think it's probably a win-win all around. Um, why they don't do it, I don't know. Maybe it's sort of one of those things that's just like, nah, this is my property. You know, no one else is staying in it while I'm not here. Uh, maybe People don't trust one another. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, of course. Maybe it's a lot of like heavy me mental lifting of finding that right person who you want to, you know, stay in that space. Uh, yeah, and a lot I think of people aren't willing to put in the time to, to actually achieve that. Yeah, and I think that's probably um, fair in a sense. Um, but uh, yeah, I think uh, it, it's an alternative. And oh no, no, Kinder Egg. Uh, in this example, no, it would just be like let's say a, a young professional or something. They would still keep the house in good order, um, but they still have their full time job. And effectively, it's just a it's just a property that they rent. They actually pay the person that owns it. Um, they just pay a massively discounted rate because the owner. Uh, reserves the right to show up and stay there whenever whenever they want. Yeah, so that, it's like a, does, it's like a quasi-tenant. Okay, it, it does exist. My, it does my exist, one but question it's very that rare. I didn't ask you. I have the one question. You said that, yeah, houses, they don't produce anything, technically, yep. but they do make... Let's say the people living in 
who have them more if more efficient because they have a house to live in yeah and i think that's probably on a certain level yeah i think look i mean there's probably one of those arguments that can be made that you know uh you know hey houses are, are really really great but um i would say uh, if you're talking about sort of uh what is it that sort of inherently makes people more efficient i think um, so long as someone has a comfortable house, adding more house doesn't add more utility to these people. Uh, exactly. In the same way, look, if you had more combine harvesters or more drill presses or more welding equipment in a factory, you'd be able to produce more outcome. But if you have more bedrooms, more bathrooms, more office space, more whatever in your house, um, it doesn't make you any more efficient after a I think point. it's more of a matter of, like, you have more drilling equipment than you have resources to drill yeah, yeah i think it's it's um like the, the people so here I... are the people here are the the good so let me choose. let me give it in this in, in like an actual like uh, like realistic uh, example so current place i'm living in is my parents old uh home place is enormous and i hate it because it's too huge there's, there's just one person here, and I have to take care of this entire place, um, and that eats into my time. Whereas when I had my own place, I had a very small apartment. I just had for myself and a roommate. That was it. Nothing more, nothing less. Like, it's just the perfect fit. So every time I go, when I want to find a, a place, I look for, I don't want to go, I, I want to use it solely for what I'm going to use it for. Like, living maybe you know uh hanging out in the evenings and uh, a place for my office like or my gaming office whatever you want to call it uh that's it nothing else i don't need anything fancy i don't need a a backyard uh or a porch or anything fancy like that whereas a lot of people will pay a lot of money for those things uh and at the end of the day they they end up not using it um thought i kicked that guy word i kicked that guy Uh, the seizure guy. Uh, yeah. Can you just ban him? Just like yeah, he posted the, like seizure. I just I don't have who, I don't who, have rules to, to ban people. Oh, I love this. I'll part. just send it. I'll... Yeah. Hey, uh, e, uh, kind of like a post, but not... okay. One quick question. There you go. Yeah, go ahead. I'm just uh, since I'm like stuff. more, like, I hang out with more like kids who invest a lot and something. Like, uh, we do, uh, like, I'm currently staring on a lot of uh, re real estate investment trusts because they're all really, really cheap right now, thanks to the coronavirus. Uh, which essentially what that is, is you buy, like, essentially a place which essentially makes the buildings and has, like, lots and lots of uh, mortgages and, and land in a certain area or apartment buildings in a certain area. And, and the, the more tenants they can get, the more you get paid. Uh, they're, like, all over the world. Uh, and they actually outperform every single market on the planet thanks to housing constantly outperforming every other market. But so what I'm essentially saying uh, is, thanks to the coronavirus, would you start loading up on, on some of these? Or, and if you could, uh, which one would you load up in, if, if you know anything about it? Uh, to be honest, I, um, I consider my portfolio like this. If, and, and hey, be it as it may, it sounds like it actually might be a really, really prudent investment to people that aren't directly exposed to real estate. Um, but the, the way I figure it is this. Look, I have um, you know, properties that I invest in, um, and I own those directly, so that's sort of more or less my exposure to the property market, especially since, you know, if you have one or two houses, that takes up a significant portion of, you know, the average person's portfolio because houses, individual houses are just so damn expensive. Um, anything beyond that, I actually just invest purely into uh, stock market index funds. Um, now, I, for the life of me, sort of lack the, um, you know, the background research to really make a, an educated comment um, on the validity or sort of the underlying prospects of these um, REITs as I think they're anecdotally called uh, real, real estate investment trusts um, because yeah there's obviously a lot of news and speculation around them uh, and I think so long as you take a, a genuinely sort of analytical approach to understanding what it is that make these up how they function what future value do they hold um, then sure, invest in them the same way that you would invest in real estate uh, or, or a stock market. Uh, I think there's, you know, if their historical returns are quite good, fantastic. Now, just make sure um, that their historical returns aren't the result of, of over leverage um, or aren't the result of, you know, short-term survivorship bias. Um, and then, hey, you're, you're good to go. 
Would you ever invest in them? Uh, look, if I the thing that I'm trying to point out here is if I was not directly invested into real estate um, in, in, in investment properties, then yeah, sure. Um, so long as their underlying prospects are good, yes. Um, but I'm already, I already have all the exposure I need to uh, the real estate market. So I look to, to alternative markets um, for the remainder of my investments. I'm more focused on like seeing like RATs is good if you want like diversify from just like your current country because you're based in Australia. So I'm saying like, why don't you uh, buy some like, like if you, you can buy some really cheap re uh, real estate trusts like in Hong Kong, in Canada, Australia, uh, no, Australia, uh, US, New Zealand, Chile, for example. I'm still waiting on that Chile video, which is going to be awesome. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, so, like, why, why don't people just like diversify with real estate over the world instead of like just in their one main country? It's an interesting prospect, and the the reason that I do it this way is look, um, I don't understand those real estate markets. The other thing is, if I'm directly exposed to a real estate market in terms of investments, um, look, if if there's a bad time in the market, okay, you know what? It sucks on paper for me, but in reality, it's probably not going to be so bad for me because I live in that market. I pay rent in that market. If the market is down and I'm earning less money off those properties, I'm also paying less money for the property that I live in. Um, so it sort of balances itself out there. If I invest into Chile, let's say, and I don't know, there's, an, there's another coup or something there, well, fuck, you know, I've lost my thing, but I'm still going to be expected to pay the same amount of rent um, you know, next month. They, they're not going to be very sympathetic to the, the fact that that sort of went on and my investment sort of went up in the air. Um, and the other thing is, um, yeah, look, to, to be honest, I just don't understand those sort of markets. I, I don't know about real estate in Hong Kong. I don't know about real estate in Sao Paulo or um, you know, anywhere else in the world. So uh, it's just one of those things that, hey, I could do some research on it. And if I saw that they were a good underlying investment and I didn't already have exposure to real estate, maybe. Um, but um, I, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, you're not going to get me to, uh, to endorse these right here and now because... To be honest, I um, just don't have the sort of background knowledge to, to be able to make a critical analysis on whether they'd make a worthy investment. Oh, fair enough. I'm just uh, saying like, yeah. be more diversified than just having all your assets in one country. Yeah, and look, the other thing is here in Sydney, uh, here in Australia, um, there are significant tax benefits for being directly invested into residential real estate, which is another reason that um, it's probably easier for me to invest in real estate that way. Yeah, but, I have like, a question. Uh, no, just like, just, I just like finished mine. It's like almost done. Because like, if you look at the OEC for uh, Australia, you can see that the majority of your exports is literally uh, stuff that comes out of the ground, gold, iron ore, coal, petroleum. Like, doesn't that uh, scare you a bit if, for like uh, the long term for your, uh, for, your uh, for your investments since you're mostly probably oriented in, in Australia? Yeah, so the, the mining industry is not actually that sort of influential to the Australian economy. Um, it, it's one of those things that makes a lot of noise and certainly in our export markets, it is obviously very influential, but it doesn't employ a majority of people and realistically we're a service-based economy. We have a self, um, more or less sort of self-sustaining economy. Uh, so no, I'm, I'm not overly afraid of, um, you know, uh, mining fading away because it actually, it has. Um, since its peak in sort of, you know, the early 2010s, um, it has faded significantly, and you know, if anything, we've sort of just seen an appreciation in property prices since then. So, uh, I don't think that's going to be a huge determinant of uh, property values outside of places like Western Australia. In Western Australia, a market that was directly exposed to the mining industry, um, prices have fallen significantly. Um, so, uh, maybe it's maybe it's foolish for me, but no, I, I'm not overly concerned about that. No. Um, so yeah, uh, I want to move on just because there are other people with questions, but those were interesting ones. Uh, ooh, ooh, you so warm. Go on, ask a question. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> one more time. Ooh, ooh, ah, you so warm. Um, so, <laughs> uh, okay, so similar to like rent control, how like uh, certain areas such as like LA controls how much rent can increase like year over year, like depending on like uh, consumer spending and stuff like that. Do you think something like that tied to, well, first, more of that of, like, controlling rent increases and then also applying that maybe to, like, housing, uh, like, how much a house is worth and, like, like that type of thing? Do you think that could help, like, stabilize how chaotic it can be? And then also maybe, like, a negative um, limit, like how something, how much something can decrease? 
Um, I think those kinds of direct interventions into a market, uh, especially a market as influential as property, uh, is never going to deliver um, positive results, especially when it's that blatant. Um, you can do things to influence it, like you know, just tax laws around real estate and stuff like that. But when you're sort of saying, no, you must not sell it for less than this, you can't buy it for more than this, um, that's effectively a price floor and a price ceiling. And um, they they lead to some pretty bad outcomes, you know, things like black market sales, stuff like that. It would be a nightmare. Um, so no, I, yeah, I, I, maybe someone could argue the point to me, uh, but I don't see like it even if it was something like maybe like twenty percent a year, like it couldn't, you know, balloon twenty percent over twenty percent like every year. So it's like over you limit how fast the bubble can go. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, what happens if you have uh, inflation, massive inflation in a given year? Is it do you are you sort of cursing your properties to go down with your currency? Yeah, I don't know. It's no, no, I don't. No, 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 no. Or if your entire country gets set on fire thanks to global warming. So I mean, like current rent controls aren't like a good uh, idea. Yeah, there's a lot of negative impacts from rent control. For example, in New York City, there's a lot of ways to get around that policy. So, for example, you can't kick people out in a lot of areas in New York City and you need to keep the rent at a stable rate. However, if you move in, you can kick them out, then it gets declassified, then you can like sell it for two times as much. These policies never give any practical benefit to the country other than catering to older, more uneconomically beneficial class of people. So why would you want to do that? And, and so then how would you stabilize like the housing market? Control the market. The market would answer. Control lending. Honestly, you need to control lending. That's the most important thing that you can do if you want to influence anything. Influence how much banks can lend based on what, around what policies, set responsible lending standards, um, set minimum deposit requirements for people wanting to purchase properties over a certain price point. Um, That is the most responsible way to control the price of real estate in an economy. Um, you know, mandates that banks have to do uh, things like proper income verification, genuinely inquire into people's living expenses, um, you know, and put the onus on them that, you know, hey, potentially if this all goes belly up, maybe it's you that loses money because, of course, real estate uh, and, and um, uh, sorry, mortgages, real estate mortgages are, of course, very, very cheap forms of debt um, because they're so secure, because banks sort of just say, ah, oh, well, look, you know, even if this does go tits up, we can just take that house and sell it, and, uh, you know, that'll probably cover our position, um, which does sort of, um, hey, you know, even in sort of a like a micro microeconomic individual sort of case-by-case basis lead to some, uh, to some moral hazard. Um, so I- there's no way for, like, the government to directly control that type of thing other than secondhand through, like, banking and lending? Well, there is. I mean, bank. You know, the government uh, effectively makes the laws of the land. They could say tomorrow that every house in Australia is worth one dollar, and it's illegal to sell it for more than one. They could do that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yep. there'd probably be some rights, and they'd probably get in a lot of trouble. But they absolutely could do it. At the end of the day, they're the elected government. They sort of set the laws of the land. Um, but you'd have to think of the negative externalities from that. The, the, the fallout would be horrendous. Um, and that there's also a be... lot of you know governors and people within the government who themselves would not approve of that so yeah because they're directly exposed to it but very hypoth- hypothetical very but hypothetically it, hypothetically it could happen there's absolutely nothing stopping them doing exactly that um the thing is it would just cause some bad outcomes uh now when the more sort uh, of just, the government directly intervenes into sort of markets especially markets like housing um you get some pretty negative results realistically what you need to do uh is control it from the stem and i think you know making sure that you're doing responsible lending is is the, the most responsible way to do that. That's not very Keynesian of you. So that's not very Keynesian, or that that is very Keynesian of me. <laughs> no, I, that sounds more like Hayek than Keynes. Ah, well, look, you know, there you go. I mean, people make fun of me for being a Keynesian, sure, but um, I, I'm I call myself a, an independent. I don't really prescribe to any particular school of economic thought. There's lots of smart stuff to be learnt from from each and every one of them. Hmm. If one is to know the yes. ways of the Jedi, they must understand speaking the Sith of, as well. Uh, speaking of, like... So, so you're a centrist, then? Ah, well. 
no no labels please all right uh one last <laughs> question and then i am going to actually uh no yeah lord of flies is the question lord of flies has been patiently waiting oh, okay, okay. okay okay i'll uh, answer lord of the flies question because he normally has really really good questions and then i'm going to sleep okay. and then you can ask captain Locke because he's much smarter than me anyway no, I'm uh, not. Stop saying uh, that. Okay. Uh, would you say that an inhibition of investments in personal home homes market be beneficial for lowering prices for people and making houses more affordable? So basically, it's the question of if people can't afford homes and the prices drop, isn't that necessarily that's that's that seems to be a good thing, right? Because now they can't afford. Yeah, long term, uh, if houses are in line with people's ability, genuine ability to to pay and not an overinflated ability due to sort of irresponsible lending, then yes, that is a good thing. Short term, it causes some issues. Um, you'll see people that are underwater on their homes, just leave it, declare bankruptcy, walk away from it, like what we saw in 2008. Um, we'll see, you know, people that aren't able to access cash or, um, you know, are potentially unable to sell their home and move. So potentially a lot of upward mobility is, is sort of uh, hampered in the short term. Um, but long term, yes, you're right. Um, houses, uh, should be in line with, um, you know, people's ability to buy them. In the same way, we think of, you know, these overinflated property prices as an inherently good thing. You know, if we have really expensive properties, that's a great, you know, our property market is strong. Um, and that's sort of, you know, uh, especially in places like Australia, that's like a, a victory speech for our politicians. But if they did the same thing and uh, talked about, I don't know, our, our market for groceries, and they said, oh yeah, our, our, the price of our groceries has never been higher. The price of our petrol has never been higher. The price of our automobiles has never been higher. Um, we'd be like, what the fuck? That's terrible. That's a terrible outcome. Uh, realistically, a positive outcome is where prices are genuinely in line with people's ability to, to purchase it uh, and genuinely in line with people's uh, you know, desire for those particular types of assets. Um, so yes, uh, to answer your question, uh, I think that would be a good thing, uh, but short term, there would be a lot of pain in it. Okay, good night, you. Have fun. Alrighty, good night, guys. Thanks for watching the video. Thanks for uh, coming onto the Q and A stream. I'll see you guys all on th Thursday. Yes, uh, and I look forward to talking to you then. Good night. Good night. Have fun. Good night. Good night.